0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. Well, great to be with you today. Uh, I guess I've been introduced as your grandmother, and uh, I'm not offended, not offended by that. I remember actually being in conversations uh, with uh, Dan from Woodside, uh, Ron Seabrook from Wallenstein. This would be five or six years ago. And at the time, I was at Gory Bible Fellowship, and uh, we were just kind of dabbling with the idea of a church plant, uh, not thinking at that time that that might end up being here in, in Elmira. But I think I remember at one point, I don't know, Darcy, if you were in on any of those meetings, but I remember at one point turning to Darcy and saying, are you ready to be a church planting pastor? I don't know if you remember that. I'm just basically trying to take credit for this whole thing. <laughs> um, actually, that's not true. Um, At the end of our time at Gory, I experienced a pretty severe time of burnout. And uh, we've been at uh, Wallenstein since January of 2021. So during that time, we had this thing called COVID. Uh, Wallenstein lost their pastor, Ron, uh, unexpectedly. And so, so much has happened, but this is exciting. It's so good to be here with you to see what God is doing and what God has done. So thank you for the opportunity to be here. I wanna take the title for for this sermon right out of the passage that we've just read from verse 14, where James asks this question, what is your life? If you see it there, I hope you've got your device or your Bible open. He asks this question, what is your life? Now, it's kind of a rhetorical question. Preachers are taught to make sure we preach in context, and uh, i got to admit, I'm going to take this phrase a wee bit out of context this morning. In context, James is asking a rhetorical question. He's speaking to people who are trying to be very autonomous, very independent from God, living their life as they were choosing to live it. And so he asks this rhetorical question, what is your life? And then he provides an answer and says, actually, your life is like a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So he gives us his answer, in a sense, as to what our life is. And what he's meaning in that verse is to say that, that our life is short. That we, in a sense, he's saying, we're not God. This is essentially why we struggle in life, so many of us, all of us, I should say, is when we get confused about which role God plays in our life and which role we play in our life. If you look back at verse 13 and you hear these people saying, hey, today or tomorrow we're going to go into such and such city and we're going to do business and we're going to make money. And what's totally missing in that verse is God, and what is God's will for my life. So I want us to explore this idea. What is your life? What does it mean to be human? And are we, as followers of Jesus, I assume many of us, most of us, are we living the life that God has intended for us to live? Now, I brought a whiteboard. Uh, Darcy said, the lighting's not great. And even worse than that is I'm the worst artist known to man. So I'm just going to throw it out there. Does anyone want to help me with what we're about to draw on the whiteboard? Anyone? I mean, here's your chance. You're a budding artist. Some of you are not making eye contact with me right now. (laughs) Nobody? All right, well, I'm just telling you. I'm going to give you another three seconds, and you're going to have to put up with my artwork if you don't. All right. All right. I tried. So what I want to do is uh, I'm going to use this whiteboard to sketch out humanity in the very beginning. So I want you to think, if you know anything about Genesis 1 and 2, and if you want to, you could even turn there, as we think about what is your life, we want to go back to the very beginning of creation and think, what did it mean to be, to be human? So I'm going to try and draw a symbol here that's meant to represent the Trinity. How else do we draw God? That's the best I can do. And down here, I'm going to draw a stick person. I'm telling you, you missed your chance. This is a happy stick person because this person has been created by God. And in the very beginning, I want to suggest that there was a a really strong cord that bound humanity to God. Think of a braided cord. What I want us to think of is what were all the ways in which humanity was connected to God in the very beginning? And it's really fascinating actually to read. Sometimes we read Genesis 1 and 2 and we're thinking this is kind of like science, right? This is God's depiction of scientifically how the world was made. And I would say that's that's not necessarily what's most important in those first chapters. What what I think is one of the most important things we're finding in that chapter is what does it mean to be human? And what did God intend for humanity when he first made human beings? So what, what are some of the things that we see uh, what are some of the, the cords that make this braided rope that attached humanity to God? Well, the most obvious thing we could say, and I'm not going to bother writing it because you, you, you can't read my writing anyway, but the first thing, the first strand in the cord, I would say, is that to be human was to be created by God, right? That's the most obvious thing. Uh, we know that God said in Genesis chapter 2, or the Bible says, God formed A man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So, I would say that's the first cord in this braided rope that connected humanity to God is this idea that humanity was made by God. There was a creator, an all powerful creator who, of course, was wise and and had purpose behind this creation, but that was the first thing. Humanity had to understand the only reason I'm here, the only reason I exist, the only reason I have life is because there is a God who made me. That's the first thing. Second thing, made to be representatives of God. So one of the key things we read in Genesis chapter 1 when God made humanity, it says that he made humanity in his own image. And actually even before that, verse 26, we have this conversation. It's weird. It, It takes place between the members of the Trinity where it says... Let us, God, speaking to himself, saying, let us make man in our own image. Where did the plural come from? Up to that point in Genesis 1, we had one God as creator. But when we come to verse 26, when God begins to contemplate creating humanity, he clues us into this reality that God is actually this triunity, which we we have explained later in the Bible. God, three in one, saying, let us as this union of three members make humanity. That actually is going to be a real clue as to what it means to be human. What it means to be human is to be relational. God had always existed in this perfect harmony and relationship of himself. Now he's going to make human beings in his image. What that means is that humanity was meant to be not just made by God, but but to represent God. So to be made in his image means that we were to function, live in this world that he created in such a way that when people looked at humanity or when God looked at humanity or when people looked at each other, they would see reflections of God himself made to be representatives of God. Have you ever been a representative of something? It's, it's a really important thing. It's, it's a high calling. And so to be made in the image of God was this important aspect of being human. Next, we find that humanity was made to be the servants of God. Now, that's, that's a word that we don't like. We chafe at that idea today. But to be a servant of God and to be given a role that's crucial in the creation of the world. So listen to what God said to them. He said that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures. That's actually Genesis one twenty-six. That's the outflow of him saying, let's make man in our image so that they can rule over the things of creation. No wonder. Make, let's make these people in our image to be representatives, to actually care for, to be the caretakers of the world that I'm about to make. Genesis one twenty-eight. it says, subdue the earth. That's, we, we hear that and we think, oh, that means that we, we should pillage the earth. No, it's not at all what it means. It's like, picture this. You leave church today and imagine there's a horse and buggy on the street. The idea of subdue is the idea of harnessing. So here's this horse with all its strength and beauty, but it has been harnessed to do something. And that is what it means for humanity to subdue the earth that God made. We were meant to harness it and get the most out of it. Genesis 2.15. God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So to be human was to find ourselves in the service of God, literally being his representatives on the earth and also being the caretakers of all that he had made. By the way, don't, don't ever let anyone... I sat on an airplane once flying home to uh, I was flying to Thunder Bay. My parents lived way up in Marathon at that time and I was going to help them move. So I flew to Thunder Bay <clears throat> and I sat with this guy who uh, told me at least that he had, you know, pretty high connections in Ottawa and he knew people in the Liberal Party and he knew the prime minister and different various things. So I was like, "Okay, I guess, I guess this guy's pretty smart." But in the course of conversation he we we got talking about God and spiritual matters and and uh, he told me, well, you know, we really don't know that the whales aren't really as intelligent as we are. We don't know that. And he was making the assumption that animals like whales really are at, on par with what it means to be human. That's what the scientific community, some would say, or people who, who, who are naturalists might want us to believe that, that we're just animals... Maybe we've evolved a little bit higher, but we're not even so sure about that because some animals are highly intelligent. One of the things that the story of creation tells us is that there is this huge division between humanity made in God's image and the animals that were not made in God's image. In fact, humanity was meant to be the caretakers of all that God had made. So that's the third strand. We have God made us, we have God made us in his image as his representatives, and then we find that God made us his servants to watch over everything that he had made. Then we find a fourth thing. So you might remember this from Genesis chapter 2. God commanded the man, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Have you ever asked yourself the question, well, God, why did you bother putting the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden? Wouldn't have things turned out a lot better if you just wouldn't have bothered putting that tree there. Or we might ask ourselves, why did God have to be so, you know, overbearing? To give these rules and commands, we chafe at that today, and we, we tend to naturally think in our, in our minds today and in our culture today, we think of a God who gives rules as a God who's unfair, as, as a God who just wants to lord over us. But you need to understand that this is a crucial aspect of what it meant to be human, I suspect a part of this thing with the tree is a test to find out, will humanity live as it was meant to live? Because humanity was meant to live under the rule of God. Let me say it differently. Humanity was meant to live under the loving rule of God. You see, when we hear command, when we hear God say, thou shalt, we chafe and we think, well, here's God ruining my fun, lording over my life. Taking away my rights. And what we fail to see is that when God says, do this, don't do this, he's acting to us as a loving father, a loving creator who says, I don't want you to get hurt. I have a book uh, about the Ten Commandments. It's called The Tender Commandments. Because we think of the Ten Commandments as these ominous things that make our life difficult. No, that's not at all what they are. The Ten Commandments are God's gift To humanity, to keep us safe. So, the fourth strand of this cord that connected us to our Maker is this idea that God is in charge. And we have to submit to His rule. And when we submit to His rule, we find ourselves exactly where we should be. We find ourselves in a place where we can flourish and thrive as human beings. One more cord in this braided rope. We were made to be blessed by God. Now this little expression uh, is, is almost mentioned in passing in Genesis 1.28. It says that God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. But we can read over that expression far too quickly. God blessed them. Because what it meant to be human was to live under the safe and, and generous blessing of God. In chapter 2, God says, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the, the whole earth. Every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. So we see God as this generous provider, this gracious giver who blesses humanity. And humanity is meant to thrive and flourish under the blessing of God. It's not just the food, of course. God created a world where there was water to drink and there was oxygen to breathe. And there were, there were people to know. And there were All kinds of aspects of God's creation that glorified him. This is what it meant to be human. So we read on in Genesis and we come to chapter 3. When we think about these five chords, God made us. We were to represent God. We were to be under God's rule. We were made to serve God and his creation. We were meant to live under his blessing. And in chapter 3, if you know the Bible, you know what happens in chapter 3, and that is that Adam and Eve, sinned against God, or they broke that rule that God had given them, that they should not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a way that's become really helpful for me to understand, like, what does that actually mean, and what does it mean to us today? What was actually happening in Genesis chapter 3? And a way that I find to say that that's helpful is the idea that Adam and Eve, or humanity, ran away from God. That's what sin was. Adam and Eve ran away from home. They were meant to live here under this safe canopy of God's presence and his goodness, and essentially what they did when they sinned is they rejected all of that. They ran away from home. So now we got a human being over here who's very sad. And in fact, as you read on in Genesis chapter 3, what you find is that there is this flaming sword that guarded the way between God and humanity. Now there was this barrier. Now this cord had been cut. And this was Adam and Eve's choice. And you can say, well, why did God give them so much power to make a choice like this? Well, he had made them to be the overseers of the world that he had made. And when they chose to run away from God, they got exactly what they wanted. And sadly, now we live in a world, all of us live in a world where we see not the blessing of God primarily, but but a curse, brokenness, sin. We still, it's amazing actually, we still have these cords. We still see God's blessing. It's still true that God made us. It's still true that we were made in God's image. And yet this whole thing has been distorted and twisted and Far from what it was intended to be. So, think about what happened when Adam and Eve sinned against God. As I said, number one, they ran away from home. Number two, they rejected God, their creator, their maker. They listened to a snake who came into the garden and told them lies and gave them false expectations. So, they were rejecting God as their creator. They were refusing his rule in their lives, weren't they? They didn't want God to sit on the throne of their lives. They were saying, I want to rule. I want to sit on the throne of my life. They rejected his blessing. You remember what Satan said to them in the garden? Don't you know that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be like God? You'll know good and evil. And what he was suggesting to them is that God's holding out on you. He says he's blessed you but he actually hasn't he's he's kept from you some of the best for himself and so what they do is they reject the blessing of God they say God it's not good enough we want to we want to look for more we want to pursue more the image of God in humanity was tarnished still there which by the way is why we sometimes see even in the news today people human beings who don't necessarily follow Jesus but they can do some pretty amazing things, actually. Some very generous and kind things. Why is that? It's because they still bear the image of God. Finally, instead of being the caretakers of God's creation, we misused creation, the creation we were supposed to manage, and in fact, in some cases, we began to worship the creature rather than the creator. So I want us to go back to James chapter. Four now, and look at verse thirteen again, from this perspective. This perspective of what we've seen here from the early days of humanity, what humanity was meant to be, and what humanity became in sin. So look at verse thirteen again. Come now, you who say, "Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there, and trade, and make a profit." What do you hear as you read verse thirteen? what we're seeing is exactly this so it's exactly the same pattern it's exactly what adam and eve did in the garden why is that well notice in verse 13 there's no no sense of god in verse 13 at all what you have is human beings seeking to be autonomous we'll say or a more understood word maybe is independent to live independent of god i don't need god i got my own plans So verse 13 is a human life, completely free of the idea of God ruling over me or having a purpose for me. Secondly, we notice there's there's kind of an assumed, I'm going to use a theological word, sovereignty. It's a word that we apply to God. It means that God is in control of everything. But notice in verse 13 how these people apply that sovereignty to themselves. They assume that kind of sovereignty because they say, today or tomorrow, here's what I'm going to do and I'm going to go to to this town, and I'm going to spend a year there, and I'm going to do business, and I'm going to make money. It's this idea that I am the God of my life, and I am in control of my life. And then, I would say, there is a false worship. Because nowhere in verse 13 do we have the idea of a human being living for God's glory, fulfilling the purposes of God, uh, seeking to serve God. No, it's all about It's all about me. It's about my kingdom, my business, my profits. Do you see it? It's the same, it's the very same kind of life that we saw with Adam and Eve in the garden. Now notice verse 16. James gives us an assessment of this kind of life. The verse 13 life is described by James. In verse 16 he says... You boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. It's pretty blunt. Eh? It's just like James, as uh, Darcy's been teaching. It's just blunt. Doesn't beat around the bush. Doesn't try to soften the blow. That kind of life, that kind of self-serving, independent life, boasting of what you're going to accomplish, living for yourself—he just calls it what it is. It's evil. We see that in the book of Genesis, of course. It's so clear, right? Because the, the serpent comes in and tempts them, and, and Adam and Eve fall prey to that temptation, and then they fall under the judgment of God, and there's this flaming sword that's placed between them and God. It's so clear in Genesis chapter 3 that sin is evil. It's less clear when it's our lives, when it's us who are living independently from God, who are just going about our own business, pursuing our own interests, our own kingdom, so to speak, But James is going to call it what it is. It's the very same thing as you find in Genesis chapter 3. Don't don't ever say, well, boy, if it wasn't for Adam and Eve, man, we could have had it good. Because we have to be honest with ourselves and recognize that there were many, many times in our lives when we came to a crossroads where we had to choose between God's rule and ours, between obedience and disobedience, And we made the very same choice that Adam and Eve made. Now, I know you can say, well, Adam and Eve sinned, and then we all ended up having this twisted sin nature. Yes, but we have to acknowledge the fact that we've all made choices that we didn't have to make that mirrored the choices of Adam and Eve that resulted in us experiencing the life that we experience, the the broken world that we experience today. It's because what the Bible calls sin. And James calls it sin. This boasting, this arrogance, this independence from God, it is evil. Now notice verse 17, because he's going to go on just a wee bit further here, and say, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, I don't know about you, but as you read through verses 13 to 17... Um, I kind of get it up to verse 16, it kind of flows for me, and then verse 17 comes, and I'm like, I, Darcy, I'm not sure, maybe that should have been in next week's passage, because I don't know that that fits here. It doesn't seem to connect to these other verses. Now, one of the reasons for that is the book of James is kind of like that. James kind of bounces a little bit from one theme and, and one topic to another. Some people say James is kind of like the New Testament book of Proverbs. If you go and read Proverbs in the Old Testament, it's highly disconnected this topic and that topic. So that's part of why this seems disconnected, but the other part is I I think we just fail to make the connection here between verse 13 and verse 17. So you can go back to verse 13, and, and maybe some of you have had this thought already. Maybe some of you are business people, or maybe some of you are farmers. And as you read verse 13, it doesn't seem all that bad to you, right? Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, and we'll spend a year there and trade and make a profit. You can read that and say, what's, well, so what's the big deal? It's wrong to do business? It's wrong to make money? Is that what James is saying here? Is that what he's calling evil? Well, we know in the context, James is he's definitely um, challenging us about that kind of life. But maybe verse 17 can actually help us here. Because many of us think of sin, or we think of living a a, a life against the will of God, as simply about those bad things that we know we shouldn't do, but we do. And we tend to think of sin that way. Sin is bad stuff that I know I shouldn't do, but I do. And if that's how we understand sin, we we actually maybe only have 50% of it, maybe even less than that. Because in verse 17, James is actually, he, he, he's reminding me of this. To be truly human, remember, what is your life? What does it mean to be a human being? What it means to be a human being before God is, God has some purposes for you to do. He's got some good things he wants you to do with your life. He wants you to live as his representative. He wants you to be his image bearer. He, he wants you to serve him. He wants you to make his glory known in this world. And when we choose to live our lives simply for ourselves, I want to be a successful farmer. I want to be a successful businessman. I'm going to pour my whole life, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, into this one thing, business success, making money. And now when we step back and look at it that way, we realize, okay, so here's where the problem lies. Is it wrong to do business? Is it wrong to make money? Not necessarily, not at all. But when I focus on that, it becomes my God, it becomes my idol, it becomes me declaring my independence from God, living apart from God, and refusing to invest my life into good things, sacrificial things, where I give up my time, as it says in verse 17, because I know it's the right thing to do. Your neighbor across the street, struggling. Struggling. To shovel out all that snow last week. Doesn't have a snowblower. Well, you know, if they would have been smarter with their money, they might have had a snowblower. Maybe they could afford to pay someone to do that. Rather than thinking of what does it mean to be made in the image of God and walk across the street with your shovel, come alongside that person and show some kindness. To bless someone else. The way that God blesses. To show some care and concern. Do you see how this, this, this is? We can shrug our shoulders and think, well, that's not my job. And actually we're sinning. Because James would say, you know the right thing to do. And if you're a follower of Jesus, we got to understand this. We have been called to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our world. And we know what he would do, and yet we're so fixed, focused on our life and our plans and our business and our money and our dreams that we fail to do the good that God created us to do, and when that's the case, we are sinning. That's the connection between verse 13 and verse 17. So what do we do about this? I don't know about you, but this hits pretty close to home for me. This, because when I think about what is my life, I realize, boy, if I'm honest, I see myself here. It's been really easy for me to reject the rule of God in my life and to disregard the fact that he's my maker and, and to, to spurn the blessings that he's brought into my life and to live independ, independently from him. If we're honest, we see ourselves here. And we have to ask, what are we going to do? What are we going to do about that problem? Now, the truth is, James doesn't help us a lot with this, although he does. Verse 16, he says, verse 14, sorry, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And then verse 15 is really his exhortations to us. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So when he first says, your life is a mist that vanishes. And then secondly, he says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. Here's two things. Number one, James is teaching us we need to be humble. You are not God. One of the most profound moments in my life came in my early 20s when I was struggling with depression. Clinical depression, pretty severe By God's grace, I was able to to get to see two different Christian counselors who began to help me to reshape my thinking and see life more clearly. And with one of those counselors, I was explaining, he was asking me questions and I was explaining, you know, some of the things that frustrate me in life. And I was describing how, you know, I can't even stand it when I, back before we had smartphones and GPS, when I'm trying to find a place and I I get lost and I end up driving around in circles for half an hour, I can't stand that. It makes me so mad and the counselor turns to me and says, "Gary, who do you think you are? God?" And that simple question hit me between the eyes so hard. And I realized that's the essence of what it means to be a broken human being, is we get everything confused and we think that we sit on the throne and we're the god of our own lives what is James saying? You've got to change that. You've got to humble yourself. You've got to recognize that your life is a mist, that you are nothing compared to God. And then he says, that's the first thing, humble yourself, your life is a mist. And then you could say really the same thing, humble yourself under the will of God. Do you see it there in verse 15? You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, there's two sides to this idea. If the Lord wills, number one is this: we ask ourselves, "What is God's will for my life?" I refuse this idea to do what Adam and Eve did, and to do what I've done for my whole life, and that is, I'm going my way. I'm Frank Sinatra. Right? I'm doing it my way. I refuse that because I understand that God sits on the throne; He is in charge. And so my attitude changes, and now I'm saying, God, I want to do your will. That's one part of it. The other part of it is recognizing what we saw earlier, and that is the idea that God is sovereign. And we submit ourselves to this idea that God is in control of our lives. And when circumstances come into my life that are painful, that hurt, I don't like them, that I humble myself and submit myself to this will of God because I realize he's on the throne And I am his servant. One of the most profound moments in the Bible, where someone demonstrated verse 15 to us, happened in a garden on the Mount of Olives, where Jesus Christ himself, who was the Son of God, remember here? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Son of God, chose to come down. This this is God's compassion. This is God's mercy that ever since this happened, God, the whole story of history is God pursuing us out of mercy and grace. So Jesus comes down as God in human flesh. Why did he do that? Well, number one, he was showing us what humanity was supposed to look like. Read the Gospels. You want to say, what what is my life supposed to look like? What does it mean to be human? Read the Gospels and look at Jesus. Jesus. That's what it means to be human, perfect humanity. All the while, full divinity, he was God. And Jesus eventually is taken to a Roman cross and nailed there, and and people, the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities thought they were ridding themselves of a problem. And all the while, God knew what he was doing, and that was the death of Jesus providing atonement for us to repair all that our sin broke. And before Jesus went to the cross, he's in this garden on the Mount of Olives called the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's praying to his Father, which is part of showing us what perfect and true humanity looks like. Here he is in in relationship, constantly crying out to the Father God, his Father God. And he knows that on the cross, it's not just going to be nails and and a scourging and a crown of thorns. The, The real issue that he's going to carry on the cross is the sin, the weight of all of humanity's rebellion. Through all of history, God, who is perfect, is about to feel the weight of that and carry the weight of that. So he begins to pray to God. And he's recoiling at this idea that he would have to become sin in order to redeem us. And he says, God, if it's possible, Father, if it's possible, take this cup, this cup of punishment from me. And you remember what he said next? nevertheless not my will but what you will and in that moment jesus christ made it possible for our relationship with god to be repaired and all the while he was showing us exactly what it means to be truly human and we are to say the same words today and tomorrow and every day that we live on this earth not my will but yours be done the only way, the only way that we can do that is by having our relationship with, with God restored through Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that that happens when we repent of our sin, our rebellion, our pride, our independence from God. We, we repent, we turn from all of that, recognizing that it's sin. And then we find in Jesus, we trust him for salvation. And what's amazing is the humanity that's... that's um, offered through the redemption of Jesus is actually better than where we started. Do you ever think about this? In creation, humanity had this connection point between, between themselves and God. These five things, his rule, he, he's the maker, he's, uh, we, we, we were his represent, all of these things created this bond, this connection point between humanity and God. But you know what's happened in Jesus? Through salvation, through redemption, now we sang about this this morning, God behind, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ above me, Christ below me. The reality of what happens in the Christian life is that God comes and lives in my heart. Christ in you, God in you. And even better than that is the idea that as Christians, we are in God. This is what the New Testament tells us is that as followers of Jesus, having found redemption through Jesus Christ, yeah, I told you, the artwork's bad, right? Having found redemption in Jesus, now we are in God, and God is in us, and to be truly human is to have this connection point with God. I wonder if I can show you that verse. I think the guys have it at the back. <clears throat> and it is is Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. If you are a follower of Jesus and someone asks you, as James does this morning, what is your life? This is the answer. This is the answer unbelievable answer is that my life is bound up in the very life of God. That Christ is my life. He is my life. That I am in Christ, and Christ is in me. That is my life. Sadly, even as followers of Jesus, we find ourselves so often living here. Which is why a man named Craig Groschel wrote a book called The Christian Atheist in which he described the Christian life whereby we say we believe in God but we live as though he does not exist. God redeem us. God forgive us. God transform us from this kind of life. If we are followers of Jesus, may we understand what it means to be truly human. And so I close with that question again. What is your life? Which version of human life are you living? Jesus died to bring you this redeemed human life. Followers of Jesus, if, if you claim to follow Jesus, is this the life you're living? A life in which you recognize he is your savior, he's your maker, he's your ruler, and your whole intent is to do his will. Not, not your will, but his will be done. That is what your life is meant to be.